Greetings, savory inferiors, and welcome to Vampire Insider, the unofficial podcast of the Anne Rice Immortal Universe. Each week, co-hosts Christina LaRusso, Joanne Palumbo, and myself, Mark Snedeker, recap and analyze episodes, delve into Anne Rice's library, and have in-depth discussions of the supernatural. Today, we will be discussing the 2014 independent film, A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. This film, directed and written by Anna Lily Amirpour, is a Persian-language, black-and-white story of a female vampire and the boy who loved her. Uh, this evening, we have a guest, Matthew Snedeker. He is an excellent cinema critic and reviewer. You can find his work on Letterboxd under the not-too-confusing name Matthew Snedeker. We will not be having fanfic this week so that we can have enough time to discuss this amazing movie. We will be resuming the fanfic feature for next week's episode. Hello, Christina LaRusso. Hello, Joanne Palumbo. And welcome to our special guest, Matt Snedeker. Uh, hi, guys. Hi, hi, Mark. Hi, Joanne. Hi, Matt. Hello. Hi, guys. Two Snedekers for the price of one. Boy, oh, boy. <laughs> Matthew, among many, many other things, is my son. He is a graduate of Westchester University. He works in the finance industry, but he is a very serious cinema buff. He frequently posts reviews on Letterboxd. So, uh, Matthew, we brought you on to kind of give us a detailed analysis of this film. So why don't you give us a quick summary of the film, if you don't mind, and then give us your take on it. Yeah, of course. In the movie, we have kind of two protagonists. We have Arash, who is a young sort of uh, James Dean character who is trying to uh, find his way in life as a young man living in bad city Iran. And the other main character is the girl, the titular girl who walks home alone at night, who is a mysterious, vampiric sort of entity who uh, wears her chador like a Dracula cowl and, and prowls the streets of Bad City looking for wicked and maybe even sometimes innocent men to uh, bite at their neck and I guess kill them and not turn them into vampires. These two sort of come together as the film progresses and find uh, a kind of romance, emphasis on kind of, <laughs> with each other as they learn to discover who they are as people. It's a sort of mix of and is billed as a spaghetti western vampire movie. And I really liked it. I thought it was pretty cool. It's certainly a departure from a lot of other kinds of uh, Iranian cinema, probably not least of which because it is not filmed in Iran. It was filmed in Los Angeles, California, probably mostly because you can't get away with most of the stuff they film in this movie if you're trying to make a movie actually in Iran itself, which we can maybe get into a little bit later as to why that is. But um, but yeah, I thought it was I thought it was really, really cool. What did you guys think of it? I thought it was a very interesting and well-made movie. It's as Matthew said, it's certainly not the traditional uh, horror film centered around vampires that you would normally see. It was very unique in its approach. I think it had some interesting feminist notes in it, and it certainly was paying homage to some earlier film. Uh, genres, as Matthew mentioned, the spaghetti Western, kind of the sort of James Dean rebel without a cause thing. There was some 80s culture sprinkled into that, maybe some 90s club culture evidenced. Um, but I thought it was just really very well made and an interesting departure from the normal vampire fair. All right. So Black and white movies, foreign films, subtitles, that's just not my jam. I just never got into anything like that. And this movie was no exception for me. I didn't really like it, but I, because I'm such a ray of sunshine, I did make a list of a couple positive notes. For example, I love the guy's neck tattoo that just said sex. I thought that <laughs> just kind of cut right to it. Subtle. Yeah. Yeah. Like I just, I like that. I did really enjoy that it was a female doing all the killing. We had a woman vampire out there killing all the shitty men. So that I thought was pretty good. Mark, I would really think that one of your favorite parts would be the guy, the uh, drug dealer's outgoing message. 
where he says, leave a message, hooker. Yes. <laughs> Mark's favorite word, hooker. I, just, I certainly don't approve of that in any way. What are you talking no. about? No. And then two point, two more points. I loved seeing the vampire do the Bior strip. I mean, they're just like us. They worry about their skin. And <laughs> did you guys notice a little subtle moment? Well, maybe it wasn't so subtle, but a moment that you could definitely say mimicked interview with the vampire. And I use the word mimic on purpose. Mm. Come on. It. When they're walking down the street and she starts mimicking everything he does, kind of like Santiago and Louie. Oh, yes, she does do that. It was a very interview with the vampire moment. Gosh, that was that's pretty good. Pretty good, Joe. Wow, excellent. Well, that's pretty much all I've got in terms of hot takes. So, yeah. That's okay. And you know what? It's good that you have a different opinion than the rest of us because you're going to be able to add that sort of that perspective because not everyone our hope of course is that our listeners are going to either have seen it or or will watch it before listening to this episode. And will ultimately enjoy it. You know, I, I would like for that. Well, hopefully, but maybe some won't. But still, it's worthwhile to have, have a conversation and it's good to have different viewpoints. My hot take is I liked it. It was slow. It, there were some artistic choices that I thought were, you know, like it's sort of art for the sake of art. For instance, there's a character that seems to be a trans woman who is doing some sort of interpretive dance at one point. I'm sure, Matthew, you will be able to explain to us what that's all about. But um, that was just a little bit kind of took me out of the rest of the narrative. But I enjoyed the austerity of it. I liked the slow movement. I, I thought that how she has her actors move in into scenes and sort of there, it, there's a lot of long pauses and deep, deep silences. And for whatever reason, that normally would make me a little anxious, but it worked with this. It added to the overall atmosphere. So my hot take is thumbs up. I'm very interested in talking with Matthew about number one, sort of the, the feminist side of things here and, and why, this wouldn't have been made if the um, director was trying to make it in Iran. Well, I mean, she's a woman, first of all, so I can't imagine that would that would really fly. Filmmaking in Iran, even to this day, is very difficult to do. It's it's heavily censored. Not not only do you uh, so women in general in Iran need to, for example, have uh, a job on at all times. They must always have their hair covered, their body covered, and all the way down to their ankles. They're pretty strict about those sort of like morality laws. And it carries over into film as well. There have been male directors who just can't shoot scenes of women uh, alone in their homes because it would require them to take off their hijab like they would. And you just can't shoot a scene like that because that would require the director to be in the room with that woman. I believe that you can't be like in the presence of a woman uh, with her hijab off unless she's like your wife or uh, you're related to her. So laws like that about... Even just the, the culture of living in Iran, let alone filmmaking, make it so you could certainly never make uh, a movie with nudity like this. Even just when we see the girl get back to her basement apartment and take her hijab off and have a T-shirt and have her hair out and everything would be super not allowed in any sort of Iranian filmmaking, which is part of the reason why it's all it's entirely shot, like I said earlier, in Los Angeles with a cast of all Iranian actors, everyone speaking Farsi the whole time, the language that they speak in Iran, also known as like Persian, I think, m m more more frequently. But even I think just uh, like romantic love as opposed to marital love is something that's very frowned upon to display in a movie when being made in Iran. And the uh, the Iranian government has just had a very sort of contentious relationship with filmmaking over the last uh, 30 years, some of the most well-respected directors to come out of there, like Abbas Kiarostami and Jafar Panahi, the screening of their films in Iran itself is illegal. Early in 2010, Panahi was arrested for trying to film some of the protests against um, Ahmadinejad in Iran. And he made, uh, while he was on house arrest, he made a little movie of his of his thoughts and everything in his apartment 
And to get that movie to the Cannes Film Festival, I think they had to put it on a USB drive and hide it in a birthday cake and smuggle it out of the country. Holy um, cow. So. I think I saw that movie. What, didn't it star Ben Affleck? <laughs> 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 uh, <laughs> I think that's a different one. Actually, uh, I went on a date to that one with, with, uh, with my wife when we were in high school. But <laughs> I think that's a different I let one. you get married when you were in high school? What kind of crappy parent am I? <laughs> <laughs> then, then girlfriend, now wow. wife. But no, yeah, I mean, a, a lot of the, you know, there's there's some more explicit stuff, you know, the, the, the sex act in the car and the, even just the, uh, the sex worker having her chest exposed walking around at night that uh, would just get you arrested. What about the drug use, Matthew? I'm not super versed in the, in the laws around that, but I know that the current Iranian government has a whole, their big push for a lot of their more austere measures are about drugs coming into the country. So I can't imagine that that can be shown mm. in movies either. There's a lot of stuff going on here that even just like the moments where two people almost kiss or just the puppy love between our main protagonists um, is the kind of stuff that is a little bit of a rebellion in here because uh, I was reading some reviews of the movie after I watched it and I saw a really good point that it's you know it's a movie that's made in America but by having all Iranian cast and by having everyone speak Farsi it has a specifically Iranian audience. It's almost like they're daring people in Iran to go and seek out and watch this movie, even though it's it's obviously very illegal to to watch it. It's obviously screen it publicly there. Like I said earlier, the the chador that she wears, the sort of full body robe when she's out doing her her vampiring. To me, it feels like a sort of like reclamation, right? Like the women are forced to wear hijabs at the very least in that country, and the fact that this is her sort of like dracula cape that she goes out in uh, it's like her superhero <laughs> uniform that she that she puts on to go do all of her her blood sucking and everything um it feels like a very deliberate act that that's what her dress is like i would imagine that even her skateboarding would probably even uh raise some eyebrows in iran but that the chador certainly worked really well during the skateboarding scenes Oh, yeah, I love how it sort of like flows behind her. I just found something pretty wild. I'm looking at their Wikipedia page. Do you know that Frodo Baggins was one of the producers? Elijah Wood, yeah. I saw that in the credits in the beginning, and I was like, oh, wow, that's crazy. That's like way out of left field. I mean, the movie comes out of Sundance, so maybe he he was there and wanted to finance its distribution or something like that, but that's a good good on Frodo. Dominic Reigns is in it, too. Who? He's Dominic Reigns. He's an actor that was in um, Chicago, one of those Chicago shows, Chicago Med, I think. He was also on that show Wilfred for a while, where there's just like a dude in dog costume. Yeah, he, he was the drug dealer. Oh, he was the drug dealer. Got his finger bit off. Mm-hmm. He had the one with the stick tattoo. <laughs> He's like, give me your digits. Well, just one is fine. <laughs> <laughs> Matthew, can you tell us, because I know that Mark mentioned Spaghetti Western, and I think you said that in some reviews it was they talk about it being kind of Spaghetti Western. Can you tell, for my sake, and I mean maybe some, some listeners don't know, like what does that mean in terms of genre, and why is this like that why would critics say oh it's kind of got a a spaghetti western feel to it so when you're talking about westerns it's kind of like one of the most it's the most american genre of filmmaking um but it's also kind of the the one with the most subgenres in it so you've got four main kinds of westerns your classical john wayne westerns your revisionist westerns like your uh, butch cassidy and the sundance kid blazing saddles that kind of critique the more conservative values of the original ones. Um, your spaghetti westerns that were traditionally made, I think, in the deserts of Spain by a bunch of Italian filmmakers. That's why they're called spaghetti westerns. And then your neo-western. So like western tropes and western plot points, but set in a modern time. And this movie kind of sits at the intersection of the revisionist, the spaghetti, and the neo. The, the spaghetti ones, instead of sort of critiquing or thinking about American political ideas, they sort of just take the aesthetics of the American Western. They take the iconography of it and a lot of more sort of American uh, Western music. And it's kind of like a comic book Western more than anything else. When you watch like one of those old Clint Eastwood ones, like The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, Mm -hmm. the gunshots 
they're the sound that they're actually using is 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 a cannon going off because they just thought it would be cooler if it was a louder noise. They right? are correct. So, yes, <laughs> they're very correct. Um, so it feels like there's like a definitely a spaghetti western thing going on here in that it's kind of just appropriating a lot of those aesthetics and remixing them to tell the story that they want to tell. Just the idea of this sort of like rugged individualism, like sad boy on the frontier, which is kind of what our main character is. But then also, like I said, the revisionist aspect of it, because they're sort of critiquing less the idea of a classic American Western, but more so the sort of classical conservative views of like Iranian culture. And then it's a neo-Western because it's, it's sort of set in the here and now, think of like No Country for Old Men or Tender Mercies or even like a roadhouse where you have Western aesthetics applied onto a more modern world. I think you can definitely think of like the car that our main character has in this movie as kind of his horse, you know, mm-hmm. that he's very proud of. It's just, it's a really cool, I think, like almost like Quentin Tarantino-ish postmodern like mixing a bunch of things together to make something new um, and throwing a lot of influences together to make something that feels kind of different and something that we haven't seen before. Um, but the spaghetti aspect of just like sort of throwing all those Western tropes together into into something different, I think definitely holds holds firm here. Let me throw this question out there to everyone. I know that it's supposed to be modern day, but I also kind of felt like a little bit confused about when it was set, right? Like I know, you know, you know that it's modern because they keep flashing to oil fields that are surrounding bad city and you, you know, they're dressed, most of them very modern. Arash is not, he's dressed in a more like a James Dean sort of way or like 1950s style. And he drives a, a it's a Thunderbird, right? That he drives and it like, and it looks old fashioned. So there was a little bit of, I don't know, confusion about when it when it was taking place. And when you go into the girl's room, she's got on her walls all the you know posters from like the 70s and 80s of, of music, um, music acts from the 70s and 80s. Michael Jackson, Prince, Madonna. Bee Gees. Yep. The Bee Gees were on the wall. So I just there was a little bit of conflation of time. And I, I think, don't know. Yeah, I think it might have been deliberately sort of ambiguous. Mm-hmm. Right. The 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 time that they're setting it in. Now she definitely wants to emphasize that it's modern day and industrial, right? Mm-hmm. Now there is a certain sense that in Iran, they're not going to be, you know, that's not going to look like us 2023. And if it was 2023, right. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of countries who adopt Western cultural symbols, et cetera, but maybe from earlier times. Well, like for Cuba, for example. Well, sure. Is, is where that's just, you know, that has more to do with their shortage of manufactured <laughs> automobiles and the fact that they don't have any choice but to keep these old ones going. But it does become then, you know, it, they've adopted it as part of their identity. But I think it might be deliberately kind of ambiguous. Mm-hmm. Although, I mean, look, he's got a mixtape. Right. Mm -hmm. That's not you know, he's not pulling out a flash drive or something or listening to it on his phone. I didn't see a cell phone in the movie. Yeah. Someone had a flip phone. I noticed that it was a flip phone. I don't think that she was intending it to be today. Mm -hmm. Right. Or 2014, which is, I think, when this was 2015, whenever it was, whenever whenever it was made. But I think that it, it is intended to be a bit ambiguous. And and by the way, Matthew, uh, when you addressed, you know, kind of the revisionist Western and you mentioned Roadhouse, I think that the girl would be very comfortable with the aphorism, be nice <laughs> until it's time not to be nice. <laughs> that could be. That's her. <laughs> that was her philosophy, right? It's like, I'm nice uh, until you're not nice. Like little boy, if you become not nice, chomp, chomp. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, you miss you're abusing women. You're definitely getting the, mm-hmm. the bite. You're a heroin addict dragging down my boyfriend. You're getting a bite. Going with the, the spaghetti Western of it all, I definitely think that it's with the with the American culture aspect of it. It's almost like it's a spaghetti American coming of age movie where it's just kind of taking generalized American aesthetics that have flowed overseas over the years and putting them all together. Right. Like their idea of. America is informed by all these different eras of America because of how sort of 
iconographized. They've been in media over the years. So their idea of America probably is a combination of Madonna and James Dean and Westerns and all of this stuff sort of wrapped together because that's what the volumes upon volumes of like cultural export have been over the years. So it does feel like it's this little like, especially with a name like Bad City, right? Like it's not even like they're trying to make it sound like it's an Iranian town or anything. I feel like it's just this sort of like pocket dimension that exists. You know, there's a lot of stuff about this town that don't really make sense. Nobody really cares about the ditch full of dead bodies that are just (laughs) chilling under one of the bridges. And they don't suspect this vampire girl that keeps going there and suspiciously dropping off new dead bodies that I'm sure she has nothing to do with. Well, I mean, that's pretty convenient for her, right? I mean, she's like, I've picked a city that disposes of their bodies in a large ditch, and there's apparently no effort to investigate it or clean them up. So this is, I'm mean, bad city is great city for me. When, when he ditched that, when he ditched that first body, I was like, is he just going to like, I think it was the drug dealer and they just rolled it down the hill. I'm like, they're leaving the body there just out in the open. Like it was weird. So let's talk about bad city because, um, the vampires that we, we usually are engaging with are surrounded by a crush of humanity in new Orleans. And now they're obviously in season two going to head out across the ocean and head to Paris. And, but again, it's, it's a universe that is heavily, heavily populated, and they are navigating their way as vampires through this really human environment. For me, Bad City was like there was no one around. It was, you know, except for the people that we encountered. You just yeah. didn't get a sense that there were many, many people even in Bad City. It, it, it's kind of like, well, most of them seem to have been in the ditch, right? Like there are more people in that ditch than we ever encounter in in bad city at all i think that i think that it is it does have that sense of a, a basically an abandoned um sparsely populated city right it's it's a city in decay mm-hmm. you know things are civilization is breaking down they're just keeping bodies in a big ditch right mm-hmm. there are no very few stores open if any um, no traffic to speak of, uh, although apparently they can have some big parties. They can have a, a, a club where there's dancing. But there's always, you know, the Marie Antoinettes of the world always find a party. Yeah, I think that's intentional just to show that this place they inhabit is, you know, this kind of quasi post-industrial, pre-apocalyptic pops possibly, you know, hellhole. It keeps going back to the Western of it all, right? Like it's kind of like a ghost town. I mean, you think about, uh, a spaghetti western like a fistful of dollars where Clint Eastwood blows into a town where these two gangs are fighting and the guy with the most business in town is the guy who makes coffins right it's just like this this situation that exists outside of the way we usually conceive of a town it does feel like it's just this weird like the town kind of exists for the purpose of the movie to exist. It has all the things in it that you would need to make exactly this movie yeah. and nothing else. And the only thing it really has is decadence, right? It's got yeah. drug-fueled parties. It's got sex workers. Nobody's really doing anything especially productive. Well, Arash has some kind of he has a side gig he has like of a, like lawn work. Yeah, he does like odd jobs for the wealthy people. Right, when he's not dealing drugs right and um and then he and his of course his father is addicted to looks like heroin yeah and uh he lives with his father it looks like that his father was left by his mother or his mother died or something there's no mother in the in the picture there for rush and then um so it yeah but but he does have work i mean he obviously has made enough money to buy that sweet car yeah Saved up over 2,139 days or whatever. I hated when the guy took, when the drug dealer took the car from him. I did really feel bad for him at that moment because I was like, you know, like what a shitty feeling. Like your parents supposed to be taking care of you is laying in the corner and you have to pay their debts off with the car that you just worked hard for to get. So, But it worked out for him ultimately. Except he got keyed. Well, it got keyed. keyed. His car got keyed by the, the sex worker. Yeah. Well, that's an easy fix. At least he got it back. <laughs> yeah, I guess. I guess I mean, he's, he, he's got a, a briefcase full of money, drugs and jewelry. I think he can probably <laughs> yes. afford a paint job. The girl took all the jewelry. All right. So let's talk about 
the girl. Let's talk about the actual vampire because this is honestly her. It should be her story, right? She, the, she's in the title. Um, she's the vampire. <laughs> uh, so how central of a character do we find her to be? I think Arash was more of the main character in my opinion, I, I, cause I think the story more kind of focused around him and his journey. And she was just kind of in the background. She wasn't my favorite vampire of all time, but she wasn't terrible either. I thought that a couple times that like I saw her kill, she really kind of got into it, like little noises and things like that. But I do think he was more of the, the main character in this. They don't even give her a name. No, she's just the girl, which is an interesting uh, choice. I mean, obviously she's a main character. I don't, I think I agree. I think, I think Aresh is the main character because we're really, you know, dealing with his life and how he deals with, you know, the presence of a, of a vampire girlfriend. I mean, totally. He is absolutely the, the sort of main focus. He's the person who goes through the most sort of change in the movie, but I do like this lowering of the defenses that happens with her over time. You can, you can sort of tell, especially as we think about the uh, the political allegory of it all, you know, she's very clearly living in a culture that does not, you know, at the very beginning of the movie, Arash even says to the girl that he's working for, like, do you as a single woman want your parents to know you're in the room with a single man while he fixes your TV? She obviously has these sort of defenses against that culture that she's thrown up and just Arash on ecstasy one night <laughs> in their chance encounter just giving her a hug and slowly treating her as a as a human who shouldn't be held down with all of these rules and laws that makes her a second class citizen i think slowly starts to break her down and and around him she's basically not not a vampire she you know she her fangs come out a little as at, when he's like piercing her ears with a hot safety pin what the hell was that all about that was weird uh-huh. right my <laughs> my fangs might come out too well i mean you know her fight or flight gets triggered when you jam a piece of metal through her you know you guys all have a very different take on her than than i do i see her very much as a, a main character i know she doesn't have a name but bear with me here she undoubtedly has the most power of anybody no doubt in bad city whether people know about her or not, she does. There's sort of a vigilante thing that she's carrying out. So she kills, as we've mentioned, she kills the bad guys, literally mm-hmm. the bad guys. So she is taking a stand for women. Matthew, I think that you're correct, right? Like she's she's fighting against the patriarchy in the sense of like the bigger picture patriarchy. But she is also fighting against individual bad guys. And there's a there's a tremendous, tremendous amount of of power in in what she's doing there. Uh, She knows her power and she doesn't shy away from it so often with vampires or vampire characters especially post-Ricean vampire characters, you get these this existential crisis-type right. vampire who's like, oh, you know, I'm a vampire. I don't know what to do. She does not seem to struggle with that at all. When she goes to the, the little boy, there's a little boy character who kind of a— an observer, but also you can tell he's like a little, he kind of, he's begging and he's urchin he, with a heart of gold, maybe not a heart of gold, you know, you don't yeah, know. Right. Yeah. And that's what she's after. And she goes to him and she says, you know, are you a good boy? And he keeps saying yes. And then she like shows her teeth to him and she like scares him. And she says, are you a good boy? Yes or no. And if you are a bad boy, I'll be what, you know, I'll be watching you for the rest of your life. She has no qualms about the thought that she's just going to outlive this guy. She's going to, you know, she's going to be the same and he's going to grow old. What he's done there is he's learned the Ghostbusters lesson. (laughs) If a vampire asks you if you are a good boy, (laughs) you say yes. (laughs) Um, So for me, there's that. She's also kind of a a romantic Jesse James figure that like steals from these bad guys and then gives to people who – need it she gives tries to give jewelry that she's taken off of the men she's killed to the the sex worker a vampiric robin hood (laughs) it is a vampiric robin hood yes exactly (laughs) i was trying to stay with the jesse with the uh, western theme but yes absolutely it's even a better it's a it's a better analogy 
so I see her having a lot of, of power. And I also see her being someone who is making decisions about her own life. When he goes to her apartment, Arash, and, and he's going to be leaving after his father, after she kills his father. He, he, he doesn't know it when he first goes, but after she kills his father for being abusive to the sex worker, it's, it's up to her to go or stay. And she goes with, she makes this choice to go with him. I don't know. I feel like there, she had a lot of agency. She had a lot of power. So I, I see her as a, as very main character energy. It's a great subversion of what you would think with the title, right? Especially if you go in knowing that it's like set in Iran and, and all of this stuff. You hear a title like a girl walks home alone at night. You know that it's a vampire movie. And you would assume that she's the prey, alone at night, defenseless, out, out on the streets of, of Bad City. But this interesting sort of like power fantasy of like, no, let's take that character that you would normally assume would get preyed upon and make them this sort of anti-hero with all of this power who, to your point, is the most powerful person in the city. Probably could, you know, could could be swaying some elections if she really feels like it. It doesn't seem like there's a lot of... Uh, a lot of police presence to stop her. I feel like if there's a, a mayoral candidate that's not doing what she wants them to do, she just has to give them the old neck chomp and <laughs> go the other way. So I really like the way they flipped the script with that, because obviously based on the title, I knew going into it, it was a vampire movie, obviously, because I was you know tasked to watch it for this episode. And when I saw the title, I'm like, okay, I get where this is going. A girl's going to walk home and the big bad vampire is going to jump out and chomp on her and they're going to fall in love. No, it's the opposite. She's the big bad vampire and she destroys all the bad boys. And I love that because I think, Christina, we've been saying for a while that we really want to see a strong female lead vampire. I don't think I got this with her. Because, again, I'm going to stand with, I don't think that she was the main, main character. But I do love that it was kind of that gender reversal that we're used to with vampires. And it's interesting that it's done in a movie filmed that's supposed to be in with a culture that women are secondary citizens, second class citizens. So I love that. I think it's pretty clear that for the director, she's the girl, right? That's the, that's the character she identifies with. And here's why I'm saying that. Anna Lily Amirpour is the director. She's a skateboarder. She's a lifelong skateboarder. In fact, all the skateboard scenes were, she did, she performed those instead of the, the actress. And one thing I did see in an interview with her is she made it a point to say, I'm a lonely person. I feel lonely all the time. And the reason I make movies is so that I'll have friends. And who's a lonelier figure in this movie than an immortal vampire, right, who has to live on her own because, you know, she spends her time eating people. And only Aresh has managed to kind of intrude on her space a bit. And you see that, right? I think that there, you and I watched it together and I kept saying to you, you know, I, I get the feeling that she is lonely um, and, you know, dancing alone in her room. But she also I I didn't get the feeling that she was like in a, or in a rush to really change that. I, I just kind of feel like she was accepting of it would be hard if you're a vampire. You are on the outside. She didn't seem bothered by it. No. Yeah. See, I just didn't see her. I could tell that she was lonely and she liked a rash and she liked bringing him into it. And I mean, like when he gave her the pierced earrings, she said, you know, pierce my ears. And um, so she did let him in. I mean, that's a pretty it's penetration. He's she's she's letting him she's letting him in. But I, I just felt like she was OK. Maybe she's, you know, sort of an introverted vampire, which, of course, would make sense if you were. I, I did want to say one thing that you, you all were mentioning is this. This concept that, you know, she's the vampire, but she's not a monster or, you know, and we talked about on our last episode about how when women are in these situations, the good girls are the ones that live and the bad girls are the sexy ones that die. Right. There's that punishment, sort of the monstrous feminine 
aspect of horror and women in horror. Um, but she, and, and always also always kind of women as victim, but if they are the bad guy or the bad, if they are the monster, then they're, you know, bitches. there's something <laughs> they, they're, yeah. And they're, and they're usually hypersexual sort of that unrestrained sexuality and all that. You don't get that here with her. And I, I thought that that was interesting too, to not you don't get see a lot with her at all of anything really. You know what I mean? Like we know some stuff about her, but they didn't really do a lot about her. Well, no, this wasn't a movie about vampires in terms of like filling out the lore. You know, you don't know if could she turn someone into a vampire? She doesn't. A vampire? She doesn't. As Matthew, you pointed out, she feeds on them and kills them. She doesn't bother to turn them into vampires or create a vampire companion for herself. So we don't know anything about how how the vampire acts in this world or what the universe is. It's just really a, a, a relationship story at, at the end, right? And a growth, individual personal growth story. Arash has yeah, more definitely. of a, he has an arc, like a growth arc. But, but so I, does she. Yeah, I, I, mean, I mean, she goes, she goes off with him. Complete isolation, right? Mm-hmm. To I mean, and her main deal is just eating people that she wants to eat, which tend to be mostly bad guys, right? Um doesn't seem bothered by it in any way. Like you said, she's not, you know, overcome with ennui or self-reflection, but she is lonely and she may have been okay with it. But when she had the opportunity to let someone in a very particular kind of person, then she did. And Mm -hmm. she decided to leave bad city, which honestly was a very good gig for her. It was. I mean, (laughs) so you wouldn't say this was a vampire movie, right? You would just say this is more of a, of Arash's. Well, it's a vampire movie because she's a vampire. Right, it is, but there's vampires in it. It's not a vampire movie like Dracula is, right? Or Salem's Lot. Or cause because the city doesn't seem to care that that there are all these deaths happening. Now, assuming that everybody in that plague pit are her victims, what like no one seems to care about that. There's just Well, this... we don't know. There's just no backstory either way, right? There's just nothing. So no, there's no explanation. I think it's, you know, it, it, it's symbolic of de- decay, of the city's decline, of a certain carelessness around humanity, a lack of human, you know, like yeah. ca- carelessness around that. I don't know. Do you think that it's maybe like kind of supposed to be like, I don't know if allegory would be the right word for the, you know, the Middle East and the unrest in the Middle East and how, you know, there's like a constant war going and at that time and people were dying a lot anyway. And then Matthew, what do you think? You know, you know, kind of guess I'm trying to go with that. Like they just, they're numb to it maybe. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that this world that she lives in, I think that the fact that we're constantly seeing these flashes of like these oil fields and everything feels very deliberate, right? It almost feels like why is the town that we live in this way because of the presence of all of this stuff? around it maybe as this sort of like in the movie maybe a little bit more of a metaphorical ominous force of the of the oil fields all around but then in real life it's you know the the western influence that that comes in and and has caused all this warring in the region that they live in for for so long i think that that's a i think that that's a great point joanne but um to go to go back to sort of like so, you know, you have this city that is all about these excesses. And we talked about how, you know, the average woman vampire is this overly sexual creature. But I think that the movie does a really great job of exploring the vast range of like what intimacy is. Right. I, I said at the very beginning of my letterbox review of this movie that a lot of like vampire art is pitched emotionally on this thing of like repressed intimacy or illegal intimacy, right? Like the, the, you have such an overwhelming urge when you see the nape of a neck that you can't just go kiss it. You have to go bite it. Mm-hmm. And I think that the, the movie is smart in that it explores other, almost kissing somebody is very intimate. Piercing their ears is very intimate. Putting a pill into their mouth can be very intimate. And, like I said in the beginning of the movie, especially in a culture like Iran, just a single man and a single woman being in a room together can be very intimate. And I think it's interesting that the the thing that breaks down her hardened exterior, her hardened wall that she's had to build up from being 
a vampire in a, in a non-vampire society for so long is all of these like little intimacies. At first, it's just a hug. And then it's Arash approaching her from behind in her bedroom just to sort of like smell the same air she's smelling. Um, I think that those little moments where you don't get like the, oh, and then they have sex or any of this. The, uh, the, the nudity that's in the film is just the girl in her bathroom at home. Mm-hmm. There's, there's nothing sort of gratuitous about it. I think that that exploration of like all the different ways that you can be intimate with somebody is another big part of the girl and how she discovers a different side of life than the one she's been living this whole time. I agree that that, I mean, that's really her barrier, right? I mean, killing somebody, I guess, by drinking their blood is fairly intimate, right? But it wasn't any Mm -hmm. kind of positive intimacy. And that's really what arrest changed for her. I think the, the question as to whether this is a vampire movie or not, I mean, in a sense, it has to be, right? It's about a vampire. But before Rice, typically vampires were a problem that had to be solved. Mm-hmm. After Rice, it was really about how hard it is to be a vampire. Mm-hmm. This is neither one of those things. No, right? this is just... It's a relationship movie where one of the individuals happens to be a blood-sucking fiend. <laughs> yeah, it's just a vampire in a movie. You know, it doesn't fit in the typical boxes that we're used to, which... I, I think the premise of it is good. And, and for me, maybe if it was done differently, I would have enjoyed it more, even without having all the lore and all the other, you know, types of sci-fi species that come along with vampires in, in, in every universe. There's is always more than just a vampire. But in this one, it was just that. And I can almost live with that if the story was told a little differently. Yeah, look, you like what you like. Two things I want to add in um, one with respect to intimacy, I thought when she hugged him, the first hug she has with him and she lays her head against his chest and I'm thinking to myself and he talks to her about how cold she is. Right. Yeah. So she's dead. Like her body is dead. She doesn't have. Well, if she's a, a, a normal vampire, there's like no real heartbeat there. Um, and she's so she's got no blood pumping and, she, and she's cold and she lays her head against his chest. And I wondered is she listening to his heartbeat, right? Right. I, that's in my head canon. I'm wondering if that's what was going on. Now, and is she doing that to make a connection with him, or is it more like reading the menu? <laughs> well, and you don't know. And then the and then the other thing is, is that we had some we've been posting about on Twitter because I've been very excited to see this movie, um, particularly because I want to talk about the role of female vampires in in Rice's universe and. Many of the people who responded said, yes, this is like one person said, this is my favorite horror film. And I thought, hmm, you know, I wouldn't exactly say that it's a horror film. Yeah. Really? But like uh, in sort recent of. in recent years. But it kind of is right. Like there's different lo- levels of horror. This isn't a jump scare, although I was every moment that the cat was on screen. You thought I was worried was that the cat was going <laughs> to die. So I was like, <laughs> she's like, she's picking up the cat. She better not eat it. And the cat was its own character. And I mean, really amazing how they, however they wrangled that cat. Great job (laughs) because cats are not easy to wrangle. Ask me how I know. Um, And uh, there are tense moments, right? There are moments of tension because you just don't know like how I just, I I was worried, is she going to just at some point freak out and kill him? And uh, of course did not. And she takes off. I mean, but that gives the movie tension, right? Right, It does. You know, it gives, it gives you, you know, uh, ramps up your emotions. Yeah, but I I wouldn't make for me that wouldn't make it a horror no, movie. No, but there it does have ten, tension. It's not like a normal horror film. I think that you guys are right in that it doesn't really neatly fit into that box. I think it, it borrows some other uh you know horror tropes like the um when when you watch a slasher movie if anybody ever has sex, they obviously die immediately after thinking of like a Friday the 13th or something and um, our drug dealer friend, after getting a blowjob at a car, uh, dies pretty soon after that, and, and also after trying to proposition the girl. Um, I think that it uh, it uses that creepiness and also all of its other sort of like aesthetic homages uh, in a sort of remixy way without really caring for having to conform to the tropes that you would expect of any of those genres, which 
can maybe, if you're coming into it from a, oh, I'm ready to watch a Western or I'm ready to watch a vampire or I'm ready to watch a teen romance or something, um, you might come out missing something because it, uh, if you went in for that, uh, it's not going to fully have it because it's not going to try to conform to that stuff that you would want from, from a genre piece like that. But I think that the creepiness and her following people around the way that she, she is kind of like a cat in the, in the way that she just kind of, you turn around and then you turn back and she's way closer than you thought she would be. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, surpri- I'm surprised she her. didn't. I'm surprised she didn't just like slowly knock a lamp off the table or something. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? That is kind of one thing that we learned about her. She does, uh, in terms of like the lore and everything, she does have super speed, like other vampires. Yeah, she does. She does. She does. She can motor, and she's and she's cold. She's cold. Yeah. So I I I saw her creepiness as really because she's creepy whether she's stalking for a kill or trying to approach someone personally. And I just, I saw that as just her removal from humanity, right? She doesn't really know how to socialize with humans. She's like, okay, I want to give her this thing. I'll just appear behind her because that's what I do. Right. (laughs) And you know, I, this guy is interesting. I'm going to mimic his moves for a while or whatever and see how that goes. Mm-hmm. Her approach to parenting certainly cannot be called. Like, I don't know that she read what to expect when you're expecting in terms of like, let's make sure that this kid grows up to be a good person. No. Right. Dr. Spock <laughs> never recommended you threaten a child's life. So traumatizing a child is not the way to get them to behave. <laughs> um, I- Matthew, I want to go back to the point that you made about how the trope about when you have sex in a horror movie and you're you some you know you die. Here is where I see the biggest sort of feminist take, which is first of all, the sex act was disturbed, and because he saw her kind of lurking in the background. To me, her anger at him was how he treated the sex worker in that he pushed her out of the car and degraded her. Not necessarily to me, it wasn't necessarily about the sex or the, the blow job. It was about how he treated the sex worker with disdain and, and treated her shamefully. And in, in a typical horror movie, the sex worker would be the one that would get killed because of the, the, the bad girls are the ones that get killed. But here it's the guy for being a bad yeah. guy. I actually thought that that was refreshing and there's still that trope, but it turns it around a little bit. Okay. I, I appreciated is it, that. Is this what we're doing now? We're saying the word blowjob in front of my children. I know. I was just about to say that. Like, I thought we decided we were just going <laughs> to yeah. call it I mean, granted, he is a grown ass man. <laughs> I mean, but... I'm sorry, but that's what happened. <laughs> I'm not, you don't see me going around saying blowjob to your kids. <laughs> I think I said the word first. I think but... you probably did. And you're, <laughs> you're grounded. But no, you're, you're totally right. They, they, they flip it on its head. And I think it's, among many things is, is part of this sort of like feminist angle in the movie. It's interesting. I saw, um, I didn't, I didn't read a lot of interviews from, um, Amir Poor before, before doing this podcast, but the, the one that I did see, she talked about how, um, and this is a little tongue in cheek because obviously the, the Chador in the movie is undeniably political, but she said that the one political thing in the movie is not the Chador for her, but the inclusion of that trans character that you mentioned at the beginning because while it doesn't really add a lot to the plot of the movie it is the one thing in the movie that is undeniably illegal in in iran i mean doing drugs is illegal the way that it is in the u.s and um a lot of the, the like i said the being with a woman with her with her job off and everything but um i think that her inclusion of that character was more than anything, like I said, this this is a, an Iranian movie shot in Los Angeles, and I think that was just a bit of a flourish for the director to to add this one last thing of like, well, if I'm already going to piss off everybody who doesn't want this movie to be made, I might as well add one other thing. Um, and also, the slow dancing with the balloon didn't make any sense, but it was really freaky and looked kind of cool. Yeah. So, you know. If, uh, yeah. if you're ever wondering if you should include a shot in your movie and it's really freaky and it looks kind of cool, I feel like go for it, you know? Well, first of all, if you're making an art film, it, I think by law it has to have a balloon in it. <laughs> or, you know what that scene really reminded me of as, as I was sitting 
afterwards and thinking about it, I've, this mo- this film really stuck with me, and I've thought a lot about it uh, since we watched it. But it reminded me of that scene in American Beauty. Is it called American Beauty, mm-hmm. where the kid does the tape of the bag, the plastic bag, blowing in the wind? Do you remember that scene? Oh yeah, yeah. It's purposefully art. Right. And so um, having the balloon. So it was between that slash and then the red balloon, obviously, that we all watched as kids in Gen X. Right. So I my take when I first saw the trans character and I think I even said that I'm like, okay, this, you know, trans woman is going to be like, you know, some kind of Greek chorus or something is going to be the, you know, the observer and then never reappeared. Yeah. Right. So I think I think, Matthew, you're probably correct. Basically. Amarpour was saying, well, I'm making a movie. Why don't I just stick another finger in the eye of the Ayatollah and throw this in here? <laughs> like I said, at the end of the day, millennial movie making, Gen Z movie making, it's all about vibes, right? And if you can add something in there that, that increases the vibes of the movie and just makes people feel something, and if it doesn't mean a whole lot, why not, right? Sure. Yeah. Do it. It'll be a line in the reviews, and it'll get people to go see it, maybe. There you, you go. Know? Yeah. Okay, well, I think um, maybe we've come to the the end of this conversation. Does anybody want to say any last thoughts on the film before we we wrap up Matthew's portion with us? I don't think so. I think that I I think that I covered everything that I uh, wanted to say about the movie. I just wanted to say thanks for having me on, and uh, I encourage anybody listening to go uh, to go check out A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. I think it's really terrific. British film critic Mark Kermode, who I follow, uh, named it as like one of his favorite movies of the 2010s. It's really interesting. If nothing else, I think we can all agree on that. And uh, I think it's I think it's got a lot of fun ideas. In it. It's worth your time. Uh, do you have your page where people can go and watch your look at your movie rating system? Is that still up and working? Yeah, my my letterbox name is just Matt Snedeker. Um, I'm pretty easy to find. I can't imagine there's a whole lot of people with that name on there. Um, if you one. want to search me up, I, I write movie reviews on there whenever I uh, whenever I watch a movie. Feel free to feel free to drop a follow or something. Well, thanks very much for coming on, Matthew. We really appreciate it. Yes, thank you, Matthew. It was awesome to meet the smarter, <laughs> more intelligent, better spoken, and just overall nicer Snedeker than the one I'm used to. Yeah, more attractive too, but you can't see that on the phone. Right, <laughs> right. just trust him. <laughs> I'm, I got zero doubt on that. Okay. And Matthew, you're still grounded. Let's close out this episode. We had such a great time talking with Matthew. So we're grateful for him for coming on and sharing his insight. Joe, do you want to take us out? All right, guys, that is a wrap on our review of A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. Thank you to Matthew Snedeker for joining us. If you enjoyed the episode, please make sure you share it with your friends. You can also find us on Twitter and join in on the fun at vampire underscore insider. You can find Mark at Mark Eats Peach and Christina is at Christina Gen X. Thank you guys. Have a good night. Good night, Mark. Good night, Christina. Bye. Peace out, objects. (laughs) 